In less than two minutes, a fire can be fatal. The heat and smoke from a fire can melt clothing to your skin and turn a room completely dark. You won't be able to see, think, or breathe. Join expert fire instructor and consultant Mike Schlappmann, a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and owner of Fire Consulting and Case Review International, and Donna Ingram, a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators and instructor with over 30 years experience in fire investigation and insurance as they speak with leaders in the fire safety and fire investigation fields. Let's talk about fire behavior, fire safety, and who is out there working for you to be protected from the devastation of fires and those set as a crime. Get tips on how to keep safe, what to do in the aftermath of a fire, and handling insurance matters. And now, here are your hosts, Mike and Donna. Hello and welcome to Fire Clue, the podcast. This is Mike Slatman, a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. Uh, and I have over 45 years of fire investigation experience. And this is Donna Ingram. I'm a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators. And I'll go ahead and date myself. I have over 30 years in this business. So, and uh, welcome to Fire Clue. Yes, and today we have, and we're honored to have the president of the International Association of Arson Investigators, Bob Toth. Now, Bob has got, oh, um, he had 21 years in the fire service, and, and, and he's been working with law enforcement and conducting private investigations uh, after retiring in 2002 from the fire service. He has IRIS investigations, and he has, he has, not only investigated in this country, but um, in Hong Kong and South Africa, and has put on seminars all over the world. Um, in addition to running in his business, uh, he's also done presentations on NFPA 921 and interviewing, and uh, he's presented various topics to public agencies and private inter enterprises throughout the United States and throughout the world. Um, he is the president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and a past president of the Colorado chapter of the IAAI. And um, currently, he's a member of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, and um, Organization of Scientific Area Committees. Uh, he does write um, as seen on scene for the journal of the IAAI, the Fire and Arson Investigator. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Donna. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here today. Well, we appreciate you on all the work you've done uh, for the IAAI and for the chapters. Um, Bob, you you have been in this business for a long time, and we're going to ask you some questions today that because we're talking to the general public is is just a refresher for our the members of your association and mine. And okay. I wanted to cover a couple of things. And first of all is what is the IAAI? What, what is their purpose? Uh, the IAAI is an international association. We have members uh, all around the world. And we, we want to be to those members and to anyone associated with fire and arson investigations and explosion investigations, 
be at the frontline first responders, uh, the private investigators that uh, respond with insurance companies or insurance adjusters, attorneys that work with uh, product manufacturers, things of those nature, anyone that has any affiliation with fire investigations or arson investigators, the International Association wants to be that global resource for training, education, and resources uh, for those individuals and people that are involved in those types of losses. So how many members do you have? I, I was chair of the membership committee several years ago, and we had about 10,000. How are we doing now? Yeah, we're up over 10,000. We have 10,300. Don't ask me their names, but I can tell you that, uh, yes, we're uh, uh, every every month when the board meets uh, virtually, uh, we get an update from our membership committee, and uh, we continue to grow steadily month after month. That's awesome. And uh, I know you said it's public and private, but who who really is eligible for membership? Is there certain criteria that they need? Yeah, they have to uh, be in good standing. We we do uh, background investigations on uh, uh, people that uh, wish to be members. Uh, and like, as I said earlier, anyone associated with uh, fire investigations, they could also be uh, uh, engineers, uh, other subject matter experts, for instance, like mechanical or electrical engineers who may be involved in uh, determining the cause of a fire, law enforcement, fire service, of course, the legal community, uh, and fire loss claims and, lit- and litigation, anyone uh, who's currently involved in that, either with it, as a government entity or private business, uh, is available uh, or eligible for membership. Uh, you do have to be over 18 years of age uh, to be an active member and have the uh, ability and right to, to vote on IWI business or to hold office in the association as well. There are, uh, we also offer a, a student membership and an associate membership for those who don't qualify as active members. Uh, you can become an associate member, uh, which uh, provides you all of the rights of an active member except voting and holding office. So sometimes we'll have uh, kindred organizations or other stakeholders uh, that may be involved in, in dealing with the effects of fire that may want to become an associate member. So we offer that as well. Now, for just like general membership, I know it's uh, it's quite expensive to serve on the board and do all those things. Not, you know, it's out of pocket for travel and such. But what's the average dues? Is it? I mean, I know that changes, but uh, what's an average amount for dues? Yeah, the dues for membership is is one hundred U.S. dollars a year. Uh, student memberships we offer that at at fifty dollars a year. Uh, they have to be currently enrolled, enrolled as a full-time student in any uh, post-secondary institution and pursue, pursuing uh, some sort of degree, either in fire science, investigations, uh, the administration of justice, uh, fire protection engineering, things of that nature. But it's it's $100 a year. Okay, so I, I wanted to ask you something, and uh, and it's along those lines, actually, um, you have a fire and arson investigator magazine, and a lot of the people that are involved in fire investigations are also, uh, you know, like laboratories and they sell fire uh, equipment and stuff. Um, they can get advertisements in the fire and arson investigator magazine, can't they? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, we encourage that. Uh, we also have uh, coming up uh, in April – 
we have our international training conference, which has been uh, suspended the last two years because of the pandemic. And we always have a large uh, complement of vendors uh, that uh, are associated with fire investigators who, uh, who come and assist us and uh, meet with our investigators uh, and members uh, at the uh, international training conferences. Uh, and the last count we had, we, we know that our vendor uh, attendees this year in, or next year in Jacksonville in April will be uh, uh, the most we've ever had. So we're seeing more and more interest uh, from those vendors and those kindred organizations and those other stakeholders involved in uh, uh, fire investigations. Yeah, I want to encourage anybody that is involved in fire investigations to get involved with the IAAI and also to advertise. And, and, uh, and there's an educational foundation. Uh, Bob, will you talk for a second about the educational foundation and don't they take um, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, contributions? Absolutely. The, the IAAI's Educational Foundation was established uh, uh, years ago to assist uh, other fire investigators uh, in the pursuit of research, uh, training, and education. Uh, every year, uh, there are scholarships available to attend the ITC. Uh, some of our chapters uh, around the world have uh, uh, requested and uh, uh, pursued uh, grants from the IWI Foundation to conduct uh, various research and to uh, put on other training classes for their members. And uh, the IWI Foundation is actively involved in seeking donations from our uh, stakeholders and, and our other uh, members that are, or associate members that are interested in participating in that uh, to assist in the uh, uh, advancement, if you will, of this uh, science and uh, improve it for everyone worldwide. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, they get recognition for that, don't they? There's publicized uh, recognition if you give them a contribution, yes? Yeah, absolutely, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's well publicized amongst all our members, uh, and uh, uh, it, it does not go uh, unnoticed or unappreciated, that's for certain. Well, how many chapters does the IAAI have now, Bob? Uh, we have 80 chapters on uh, six different continents. Uh, we have a couple more uh, in the process of uh, putting together all their paperwork and their requirements to become uh, chapters. But at this point, as we speak right now, we have 80 chapters around the world and on six continents. So that means that if you contribute or if you advertise in the Fire and Arson Investigator magazine, you're getting worldwide a distribution of your name and, and et cetera, correct? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, as a matter of fact, our program, Fire Clue, the podcast, we've got a couple of ads coming this fall and this winter. And I actually spoke to your publisher about two more after that. So, and I've also, iCove Ingram Group, uh, we were a vendor three years ago before the pandemic, and we plan on on being a vendor again, not this year in Jacksonville, but, but after that. So, and it really is, it's, uh, it's, I don't go to these and I'm not advertising, uh, 
just to promote business. I'm also learning a lot of information out in the hallways, uh, sharing information with other members and and what we're doing in different ways, what's coming, and so forth. So it's really a good thing to attend. So you don't go there to just get your name out. You go out there to learn, right? Exactly. Right. So, Bob, uh, what are the benefits of being a member of the IAAI? You know, the uh, thing that Donna just said about the uh, the networking and meeting with people face-to-face uh, that that's always been talked about as long as I've been a member of the, the the value to be able to sit down with a colleague from anywhere else in the world, break bread with them and, and talk shop, if you will. Uh, but uh, uh, lately with this, uh, with the pandemic, uh, it reminds me of, of a verse from a song by Joni Mitchell. She talked about the big yellow taxi. And, and one of the lines in that song says, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Right. Well, these, these last two years, without having that opportunity to, to participate in that, that face-to-face interaction and that networking that, that Donna spoke about, I've, I've had some opportunities here recently uh, with some of the uh, uh, restrictions being lifted to be able to travel to some of the chapter trainings that, that are starting to uh, uh, begin again and meet some good friends that I haven't seen for two years and, and to be able to sit down again and shake their hand and be able to reminisce and, and again, talk shop again, face to face without uh, having to use the interface of, of a zoom conference call and things like that. It, it really highlights and magnifies the value of, of bringing people together uh, with, with a common goal and to talk about how to improve what we do uh, for the people that we serve. And as a member, to be able to uh, uh, interface with, with the people at our training conferences, be it the International Training Conference or any of our chapter trainings that we have around the world. You know, each one of our chapters generally has one training conference a year uh, for, their, for their local people. But to be able to do that, again, uh, it, it really, it, it really brings home and, and as I said earlier really magnifies the value of, of being the member a membership and having access to quite frankly some of the world's recognized experts in the investigation and research of fire and explosions to be able to have instant access to them to be able to uh, contact them via email or or contact them with with a quick call because you you saw their presentation at a, at a previous ITC and, and I can tell you, I've, I've had experiences where uh, I, over, over the course of my career, I've probably contacted dozens, if, if not hundreds of other colleagues around the world, just to pick their brain a little bit about either a presentation they did or, or quite frankly, to help me on an investigation that I'm currently uh, uh, conducting. So uh, right off of the top uh, of, of my list, when you ask that question, the value uh, as a member, that that's got to be that's got to be up there to have that access to those people and to have that connection again, and and to be able to uh, access those world recognized experts at at the drop of a hat is just incredible. Yes, as a matter of fact, I've used um, I've used it when we've had um, 
someone moving into our area from another area and, uh, and found out whether or not they were having fires in the, the farmer location. I've called up and said, hey, you know, this person is here. Have you had any uh, contact with them, et cetera? So that's Yeah, true. absolutely. Yeah. So um, the pandemic, you've brought it up a couple times, and it hurt, it hurt all of us um, in, in, in private, uh, private investigations and public. Uh, couldn't go out. Um, our, we were essential, so we had to still investigate fires, but uh, the adjusters had to go in and, and, and not go out. Some of the SIU units are still in. Uh, special investigations units. Um, how much damage did the pandemic do uh, to the IAAI? Because it had to have been something. Before you answer that, I want to thank you for clarifying, because earlier I didn't understand why you didn't know the 10,300 names. Now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there will be a test. Okay. <laughs> so go ahead. Was the uh, IAAI and all damaged uh, by the pandemic? You know, I, I wouldn't say we're damaged. I'm, or, or we're, we're damaged as a result of the pandemic. I, I know we all uh, had to make some uh, concessions. We all need to made, had to make some sacrifices. Uh, but being the eternal optimist, I I found some opportunity to to be able to, the pandemic itself forced us to stop life as we knew it. You know, we had, we had to start working from home. We had to start working remotely. Uh, I, I have to give full compliments to our training and education committee. Uh, when the pandemic hit and we had to cancel our first ITC, you know, we could, we could see it off in the horizon that, that this may happen. And our training and education committee said, we're already planning and, and creating a strategy as to what we are going to do if the pandemic shuts the world down. And it did. Uh, the Training and Education Committee uh, were able to pivot very quickly and start producing and providing to our membership uh, online training. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they did an extremely good job in, in the extremely short period of time they had to uh, had available to them to make that happen. Uh, at the same time, uh, again, being the optimist that I am, it, it forced me at least to look at the way we have historically provided training to our members mm -hmm. and uh, look at perhaps other ways of reaching more of our members. Uh, you know, in, in a reasonably good year, you know, we may see seven to 800 to 900 people, 900 investigators at our international training conferences, which, which is always a good goal that we, we try to reach year after year. And that's, and that's our anticipation uh, for next year in Jacksonville. However, when you take a look at how many members we do have, that's just a very small percentage mm -hmm. of, the, uh, of the members we have. So how are we going to continue to provide them value and increase that value to those members who, for whatever reason, be it geographical or, or financial or whatever the case may be, that don't allow them to get to these face-to-face -face trainings, what are we going to be able to do? Well, as we went through and continue to go through this pandemic, we're seeing different vehicles being uh, introduced or produced 
to provide that training. Obviously, the quickest and simplest one was right out of the shoot was the Zoom conferencing where we can all get online and we can uh, put on training that way. Of course, you know, and then if you're dealing with the, the geographical uh, hurdles that you have to go over when, when we're putting on a, a live Zoom training, you know, it may be three o'clock in the morning where we have other members. So mm-hmm. we, obviously we start recording them and making them available to our members as well. Uh, the jewel, if you will, the crown jewel of our, our, our training curriculum is a CFI trainer, which is an online free training uh courses that we have. I think we have up over 85 different modules right now, which is all available to our members. Yes, uh, uh, that was that came into effect uh, in 2004 to five when I was president. It right. first went online and and past President Sneed was the one that uh, was able to uh, isolate uh, funds uh, in fire prevention to get it funded, funded along with the ATF and and the National uh, Firefighters, uh, you know, the foundation. And um, it, Bob, it, the, the virtual cl- classes are they still available to um, to people? Yes, yes. We've we've uh, just launched a a, a new website uh, called iaaitraining.com. Uh, which has a list of all the different classes that we have available. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, CFITrainer.net uh, is our crown jewel. Uh, and there, is, uh, there are many different training modules on that website as well. And uh, we're adding more on a regular basis. The, uh, uh, all of them are either recorded or we do have, uh, in fact, I think there was a live report writing course uh, presented today. Hmm. Uh, but you can sign up and uh, get notified when those classes are, or you can register on CFITrainer.net and uh, have uh, free access to, to all of those modules that are currently there. Great. So, and, and that's one of the main functions of the IAAI is the training piece, but I know that there are other functions like uh, legislation. You have different committees Tell us a little bit about the board of directors, officers, and maybe some of your uh, highlight a couple of the committees. What else besides training is the international doing? Yeah, we have uh, currently our executive officers. There are four of us along with our executive director, uh, Scott Stevens. We have uh, 12 board of directors that uh, represent both private and public uh, industry. Uh, from law enforcement to fire service to uh, uh, private insurances uh, and as well as the legal community are all represented on the board of directors. We have uh, a number of uh, different committees, uh, again, all volunteers. Our uh, advocacy uh, group uh, is, is, uh, is, is one of those. The uh, uh, is responsible for uh, educating our members on how to interact with elected and appointed officials. They, they keep us updated on any legislation that may be uh, going through uh, uh, the courts here in the U.S. or Canada uh, that may have a direct impact on our ability to uh, conduct those investigations. Of course, we have uh, the committees that are truly focused 
solely on the education portion. We have the CFI trainer.net steering committee. Uh, we have our certified fire investigators committee. We have committees that assist our chapters and help to grow the membership by building uh, more chapters as well. We have a, a, a committee uh, that uh, uh, educates its members, educates our members on the relationship between the IAAI and the National Fire Protection Association. That's our fire investigation or fire investigator standards committee. We have a health and safety committee that has really uh, taken off here in the last few years uh, at the direction of its current uh, co-chairs. And we're taking a very strong and hard look at um, keeping our investigators safe uh, after the fire uh, and during the investigation. I mean, everyone, uh, it, it, it's plainly seen, uh, plainly visible when you, when you see a, a, a fire of any size on the local news or in the newspaper. That's that's a pretty hazardous environment. There's that goes without saying, but sometimes what uh, we fail to recognize is, is uh, there are still many hazards uh, to our personal health uh, at the fire scene, not just hours, but days and weeks, and maybe even months after the fire has been suppressed, that there are still many, many uh, health hazards that uh, sometimes we, uh, we get complacent, but our health and safety committee is uh, has done a great job in identifying uh, the best practices uh, for staying safe when we investigate those fires, which, in, which includes not just the investigators, but, you know, all the people that go to those fire scenes after it's out, the, 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 uh, uh, the insurance adjusters, the, the people that help uh, the victims uh, restore their, their contents, whatever the case may be there. That's, it's a very big deal. We also have committees that, uh, work closely with the insurance industry, uh, the legal community, and then there's some other uh, uh, committees that, that are more specialized. One of them that comes to mind uh, uh, in particular is our wildfire investigation or wildland fire investigation committee that, that works specifically in the industry or the world of wildland fires. And of course, you can't, uh, you can't go too far without opening the uh, newspaper or the, the local news on, on your computer and find another wildfire that's burning out of control somewhere in the world. So yeah. uh, that's a growing concern as well. Right. And I, and I want to, to uh, point out to the fire investigators out there and, um, and to maybe new people coming into our profession that the CFI, the Certified Fire Investigator for IAAI is the, the premier um, type of, um, of certification that you can get uh, throughout the world, and including there are CFIs in other countries. So, so you should look into getting enough points uh, to take this uh, CFI exam. Uh, Bob, you, you're the president, so can you say just a couple seconds about CFI and, and Certified Fire Investigator? Yeah, the, the Certified Fire Investigation or Certified Fire Investigator designation, uh, like you say, Mike, is, is probably, well, not probably, uh, it is probably the most arduous uh, task in, or, or a certification to achieve. Uh, you need at least uh, five years of full-time experience. Uh, you need to have uh, be able to uh, show uh, 
how much training and education you've had in the field of fire investigations. You have to have uh, so much experience. You have to show how many fires you, you've uh, uh, been involved with. You also have to be able to show that you have experience in a courtroom testimony, uh, be it in deposition or in, in a courtroom or in recognized uh, classes that the IAAI uh, puts on. And uh, once you comply with all of that, uh, it does not make you a certified fire investigator. It now gets you to the position where you qualify to take the test. Uh, then the test is administered. It's a 100-question closed book test on the, uh, the current uh, uh, standard of care, if you will, uh, in fire investigations following the tenets of uh, NFPA 921 and 1033. Well, and and I'd like to encourage that, too. That was not something that was in existence until what, Mike? No, no. It, it was uh, it was the it was there in the 80s, but it, it had been farmed over um, initially. It was an Illinois program. Right. An Illinois chapter program that the IAAI revised, improved and and uh, I and there are some some chapters that still have their own, and states have their own designation, of course. Mm-hmm. And so we also encourage uh, people to get their state, our province certification as well. But the IAAI has the has the the most um, arduous, as as the president said, and also has the most respected. Well, I have a question for you, Mike. When you investigated the burning bush, was CFI around then, or no? Actually, I I didn't, but I know who did it. <laughs> we need to book. take a break real it's, quick for our sponsors. Bu- it's in that book. It's that black. Book. <laughs> On that note, uh, let's take a sponsorship break. And Bob, when we come back, uh, I'd like to talk about some things going in the future with the international and some of the things with NFPA. Will that work? That'll that'll be fine. Okay, um, great. Let's take a break. Fire Consulting and Case Review International, FCI, provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet all litigation requirements and insurance claim needs. We also peer review for other investigative firms to ensure they meet NFPA and ASTM standards. Educational and CEU classes are also available. Contact Fire Consulting and Case Review International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. That's fcifire.com or 913-262-5200. Consolidated Fire Investigation Services, CFIS, a nationwide member group of over 200 vetted expert fire investigators, Here to meet the needs of the insurance claims industry in origin and cause, investigation, consultation, and legal matters, complying with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Call 888-445-FIRE, that's 888-445-3473, for one-stop access to over 200 fire investigators ready to meet your needs. Welcome back to Fire Clue. We have... Uh, the president of the International Association of Arson Investigator, Bob Toth, who has been entertaining us with 
all of the things the IAAI supplies for their their members and for society in general. And uh, Donna's got a couple more questions for you. Yeah, I wanted okay. to take a look forward and and with because of technology and the pandemic, uh, all businesses have changed. People are working out of their houses. Then you have your fire investigators that don't get to work out of their houses. They had to be the essential people and still go out even when the adjusters and and certain government people weren't allowed out there. So I'm sure it's all in the making, but what is the IAAI doing right now for furtherment of the profession and as things progress? Well, we're the IAAI is uh, strongly represented in a number of uh, committees with the National Fire Protection Association. Uh, the National Fire Protection Association uh, generates the documents and the codes that uh, uh, fire departments and, and states and, and uh, local governments follow when it comes to fire protection and, and fire prevention. Uh, one document in particular, uh, NFPA document number 921, is the Guide for Fire and Explosion Investigations, which supplies uh, professional fire investigators with the framework, if you will, on, on how to properly conduct a fire investigation using a scientific method uh, and um, an understanding of the science and the chemistry of how things burn uh, and the uh, documented, if you will, uh, rules or evidence that that uh, will allow you to first identify where a fire started and then uh, work to determine what were those ignition sources in that area of origin and then what occurred to bring those ignition source or that ignition source and the first fuel together to create the fire uh, that that simply in a nutshell is what we do we identify where the fire started we identify the ignition source. We identify what that ignition source first ignited. But then we have to say what happened or what were the circumstances that brought that ignition source in contact with that first fuel to start the fire. You need an ignition source. You need a fuel and you need an oxygen. You need oxygen to start a fire. And currently, wherever the three of us are sitting right now, uh, we have we have heat source, we have heat, we have fuel, and we have oxygen in the room, but we don't have a fire. Well, we don't have them in the proper quantities and in, in, at, at the proper uh, uh, locations, if you will, to bring that fire together. Something had to have changed, and that's part of what we do as fire investigators. And that 921 document has been around since 1992. Uh, undergoing revisions about every three years mm -hmm. on average uh, with, with all of the latest research and, and NFPA 921, the committee uh, is, has quite a few, uh, many members of the IWI are on that committee uh, working for not just our membership but the fire investigation community worldwide. The other uh, document that is currently available with NFPA is 1033. Now, 921 gives you the framework and the, and the guidance on how to conduct fire investigations. 1033 is the standard uh, for fire investigators. Here is the training, education, 
that you should obtain and should have to be a professional and qualified fire investigator. You can't just at the end of the day hang a shingle outside your office and say I'm a fire investigator and, and think you'll be able to qualify for that just because you may have 20 years of fire uh, 20 years of experience in the fire service and I mean no disrespect to, to those in the fire service I was in the fire service for 20 years but if you don't have specific training in the disciplines that are going to uh, help you in determining the origin the cause and the circumstances surrounding a fire uh, you're not going to be able to do the, the proper job for the people you work for. Right. Uh, we we are we are strongly represented. When I say we, the IAAI is strongly represented as well uh, on that committee. Right. Where we've got a lot of our members that are on all kinds of NFPA committees, like you said, but 1033 marks the standard for what you have to have to be a professional, and then 921 discusses the high, the how-to, the guide to do it. Um, right. Kirk's 8, by the way, um, which is Kirk's Fire Investigation, the 8th edition, further expands on the 1033 uh, uh, called JPRs, Job Performance Requirements. So right. anyone that I always advise uh, fire investigators to get 1033, 921, and Kirk's eight because that really tells you how to perform the JPRs. Um, I'm on 96 on NFPA 96, and I know that you're on a on a committee, Bob NFPA 1321, the standard for fire um, investigation units. Uh, could we talk about that for a second? Because I know that we and I talked about it before, and there's some misconceptions about that. And, uh, and you know, and, and it's up for public comment now, so people should be uh, reading it so that they can make some comments on, on some uh, suggestions on how to improve it. Could you talk about it for a second? Sure, absolutely. Uh, yeah, as, as you said, 1321, uh, is a, a new document. It's a standard that they would like to get uh, published on fire investigation units, uh, be it a public agency who has a group of fire investigators protecting uh, and working for their citizens, or if it's a private investigation firm. Uh, I, I am uh, on that committee, and uh, the document itself, as you said, is, is out for public comment. I think an important thing to mention about the public comments is you do not have to be a member of NFPA uh, to make those comments. You're able to access that document online and be able to submit comments and proposals uh, on that particular document. It goes through a particular cycle. The, uh, uh, the document will be the standard for fire investigation units. Uh, as 921 is the guideline for conducting fire investigations, and 1033 is the standard for the qualifications of a professional fire investigator, 1321 does not tell you how to do fire investigations, and it does not tell you what you need to do to become a professional uh, fire investigator. We've already have two documents to do that. What 1321 will do is provide guidance for fire investigation units on how to properly develop policies and procedures and quality control manuals for their unit. Uh, 
some of my colleagues that I've already talked to that that are familiar with with what's going on with 1321 or at least are aware of the document that is coming uh, uh, that is out for public comment. Uh, the misconception is is that the document is going to tell you what type of vehicle you must have to conduct fire investigations or what uh, type of evidence storage you should have or uh, what type of uh, protective clothing you should wear on every fire investigation. Uh, that is not the case at all. What the document is proposed to do is to identify policies and procedures that fire investigation units should have uh, as part of a properly run and professionally run fire investigation unit. The, the document may say something like the, the fire investigation unit will have policies and procedures on how to mark and store evidence. Mm -hmm. It's not going to tell you exactly what should be on your evidence tags or it's not going to tell you exactly you know what uh, what color shelves you should paint or anything like that it's not going to give that kind of detail it's going to say you should have policies and procedures in place on how to deal with the uh, labeling and and storage of evidence and it and quite frankly it may reference other standards that are already out there like astm astm has a standard on what mm -hmm. should be on evidence labels so if you say our policy is to follow this particular ASTM standard, that that is what you should be able to do. You should have all of these policies and procedures in place. It'll even go as far as suggesting what type of policies uh, or, or, or recommending that you have policies on training curriculum for your investigators. Uh, you should have a policy on, on what they will have to uh, do prior to being allowed to investigate a fire on their own. There may be some sort of uh, uh, curriculum or, or training that they must have before they, they reach the uh, uh, position of a fire investigator. You should have a, a quality control manual that, that will have some sort of, of information or policy on, on the quality of the training, how often they should have training, um, things like uh, how do you handle um, complaints Let, let's say someone calls in and and has a concern about a particular incident that happened in an investigation whether it's a private uh, fire investigation firm or a public agency mm -hmm. you should have some sort of policies and procedures in place and the document is going to 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 uh, give the reader and give the user of that document guidance on what they should have within their system for policies and procedures on record retention, uh, reporting, all of all of that. It's mm -hmm. quite honestly, it's things that most fire investigation units are probably doing right now. But where where they fall short is they have no written policy that they can pull out of the drawer, take a look at and measure, measure you as to how well you're following that policy. And that's what it's going to encourage. So just for our listeners, um, NFPA 921 is a guide. And Correct. 
1033 is a standard, and the fire service is used to when an NFPA standard comes out, this is the way it is. A guide, on the other hand, says, okay, this is a guide of how it can be and encourages. So am I hearing here that this is a standard, but the standard really means that you create your policy and that becomes your standard? Doesn't mean it can't change, but the standard is that you have it in writing. Is that what I'm hearing? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And and it's it's out for public comment now as a standard. And every public comment, every single public comment that is made on any uh, of these documents, uh, I'm also an alternate uh, alternate member of the 921 committee, uh, and I sort of learned this the hard way. I uh, I would I would make it my. Uh, mission, if you will, that every time 921 would come out, I would make make it part of my job to go through it and make, make public comments on it because I feel it's important to be able to say that, that not only uh, do I present myself as a professional uh, fire investigator, but I take an active role in, in uh, trying to uh, advance our industry and our profession. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, as, as an alternate member of 921 and, and a member, uh, a committee member of 1321, the committee goes through each and every uh, comment or proposal made, and we have to respond to it. And we take a look at all of those. The committee goes back and looks at all those comments and proposals. And uh, uh, we sit there and, and, and uh, over a could be a lengthy period of time debate those issues until we come up with a document that that uh, we can then uh, publish for the uh, uh, for the industry. I also want to share with the listeners: um, you get those standards and guidelines. Anything within FPA, you get through NFPA. Uh, Mike talked earlier about Kirk's Fire Investigation, which is an actually a textbook. And my business partner is a co-author of that book. You can find that on Amazon. So when you're putting these tools in your toolbox, which is 921-1033 and Kirk's Fire, I wanted to let them know where they can get that. And one of the things, um, 1033, for example, uh, the last several versions had 16 points of things that are required for a fire investigator. The new version still has those points, but it's been rewritten, and in in Mike and you, I'm, I'm sure, know. I used to know where it was, but that, <laughs> It's ahead. now at 4.1 on. It used to be at 1.3.7 and mm-hmm. then 1.3.8, but it's, it's, it's changed. Um, this is a real advancement. I think 1321 yeah. will be a real advancement. And also, it's going to be, um, it's going to be adhered to. And, if, and it will be, any, if you're not doing it, that some people will criticize you for not having that. So it, it does have an impact. So I suggest that every uh, private concern... Get read it and make comments on it so that um, 
so that uh, you will be satisfied that it meets your criteria. Secondly, um, Bob, I have just one question about that. Are they going to, uh, does the does 1321 have anything in there about on-a-job training or how long a person should train or, I mean, as far as years are concerned? Uh, they don't go as far as, as saying how many years you should have. That that mm-hmm. that would be part of the individual fire investigation unit's personal preference, I guess. Mm-hmm. What they will say is uh, what 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 the the standard will will try to encourage is say that every fire investigation unit will develop policies on the recommended training and experience one must have before uh, conducting fire investigations. Uh, within the unit. I see. That's great. Because uh, I have a per- personal one. I, it's three years. Uh, we're, we have training for our people. Um, and, you know, and you know what, Mike? If, the, if, if, if your organization uh, is, is going to follow uh, 1321, as, as, as I understand it, mm-hmm. they will say that your fire investigation unit must have a policy on how many years of experience uh, you must have as an apprentice or, or however you want to word it. And if, and if uh, Mike Slatman's policy is my company will require each fire investigator apprentice to work as an apprentice for three years before being assigned investigations as a lead, that's exactly, you're fulfilling that requirement. You, you, you have a policy and procedure on the experience uh, needs of, of your fire investigators in your unit. Now there may be another, there may be another organization, or another company who says uh, we don't, you know, we see many, we see twice as many fires as as the uh, organization next door has, so we don't need three years. Maybe we just have to say our apprentices have to attend 100 fire scenes as an apprentice. Yeah. You know, it, but it doesn't matter. You both have a, you have, both have a policy and procedure. So think of it this way. If someone walked in off the streets and says, I want to see your policies and procedures, mm-hmm. and you supply them with that policy and procedure, your quality control manual, mm-hmm. they can turn to any page in the book and say, okay, it says here that uh, all our, of our evidence label will be red and white striped like a candy cane. Okay. That, uh, it, it sounds silly, but that... But that's, if that's your policy and procedure, then that person can walk in off the street and say, okay, let me see it. So then you take them back to the evidence storage facility you got there. Lo and behold, all of your evidence labels are, are red and white striped. Okay. Right. I, so so I, you comply with your policy and procedures. Then if you back up to 1321, 1321 will say, only say fire investigation units must have a policy on labeling evidence. I got it. That's okay. that's really good. Uh, when does the pub- yeah. when does the public comment period close? Uh, I believe the public comment period closes uh, in the end of January. I don't know the exact date, but I believe mm-hmm. it's January. Then it'll come back to the committee, and then it'll be then it'll be submitted again for a, a public comment before it goes uh, before it gets published. So there'll be a couple bites of the apple, but it's important to. Uh, get involved with that as quickly uh, as possible so you can stay abreast of, of all the things that are happening in, in this in this book or, or any of the other ones as well. Yeah, I, I encourage all the affiliates that I have all over the country to, to read it and write, um, uh, if, if they so choose, 
to at least write some recommendations. Um, I wanted yeah. to point out one other thing that you said. You don't have to be uh, a member of the IAAI or NFPA to write a comment, but you don't have to be a member of the IAAI to take the certified fire investigator test or either. Mm, that's a that's a really important thing. No, you're right. You don't have to be a member of the IAAI, obviously. Mm-hmm. I and you and many of us will, will highly encourage that. And I think if anyone uh, uh, would would take the $100 investment and give us a year to prove our value to you, you would, there, there'd be no question that you would uh, uh, benefit as a member of the IAAI. I did want to go back uh, one step here, Mike, and, mm-hmm. and give you uh, the exactly what 1321, which will be the standard for fire investigation units, it covers specifically the minimum requirements relating to the establishment, structure, operation, and management of fire investigation units. The minimum requirements. So the minimum requirement, maybe you must have a policy on evidence labeling and storage. Okay. It's up to that particular fire investigation units to fill in the detail. So this will be the first time this comes out. When when is it coming out? Uh, the first draft or the uh, uh, public comment will end in January. I th- I believe, and don't hold me to it, but I think they're looking at sometime in uh, the end of 2022 or 2023. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be sense. great. Yeah. Uh, the proposed, yeah, the proposed uh, closing date or the public input uh, closing date is January 5th of 2022. Okay. Okay, so I want to talk to you about something else. I mean, there's this okay. thing that you run. Well, first, called- thank you so much for all the information on the IWI, and I want the listeners to go ahead and back up and re-listen to the things about IWI. And now, yes, we're switching gears. Go ahead, Mike. Right, I want to talk to you about this uh, this investigation company I heard of that you ran. It's called Iris Investigations. I've known it for years. Talk about that for a second. <laughs> well, I have my uh, my lovely wife and daughters to, to thank for that. I, uh, I like uh, most firefighters, when I was in the fire service, uh, had a part-time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the last 10 years of my career, I was conducting fire investigations for, for the city I worked for. And and I was approached by a, uh, a forensic engineering firm to give them a, a two-week class on the basic fire investigations. They wanted to train their engineers uh, to do uh, fire investigations. And I told them, I says, the only thing I taught them was is their engineers can't do fire investigations. <laughs> good, uh, good, good. They, they giggled. They, they giggled, but they, they did agree. And they asked me to... Uh, uh, come to work for them. And, and I said, well, at that time, I still had two years left uh, as a firefighter. And I said, uh, I'd like to, uh, you know, 20 is a nice round number. I'd like to stay with the fire department till I have 20 years on. They said, well, this will be fine. We'll, we will, uh, uh, we'll see how our relationship goes. And, and at the end of two years, you could come on full time. And I said, okay, let that be a good uh, a, a good opportunity to see how we work together. And long story short, uh, uh, it didn't work out. Uh, uh, we uh, we decided to part 
ways amicably, I, I might add. And uh, one of the uh, engineers that also worked at that company uh, left about the same time. And uh, uh, he and I went to lunch one day and, and uh, talked a little bit about it. But it was my, uh, it was my, uh, it was my wife and, and two daughters that, that said uh, I should probably try and, and go out on my own. So yeah. uh, I, I, I tell people all the time I did not have uh, what it takes to do cold calls, and I'm not a salesman, and, <laughs> and I didn't know anything about business, and I probably still don't know anything about business. I know my business, but I don't know anything about business. Uh, so, uh, but uh, as as it turned out, uh, the, uh, uh, the I, I formed a company with this other uh, forensic engineer, a mechanical engineer, and we uh, we worked together uh, for a year, and and then we found it uh, more advantageous if we separated the forensic engineering side mm-hmm. uh, from the fire investigation side. The the name Iris is actually an anagram of his last name. It's nothing uh, too too uh, too spellbinding. It was, it was just he scrambled up the letters of his last name and found out that Iris is also part of it. So that's that's why he named it Iris. I thought I uh, thought it was the flower. Well, it, <laughs> and and you know this, Mike. When whenever you start your own business, it it it. It's simple to be successful. You work right. 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and right. you'll you'll be fine. Well, the other, the other, uh, you know, six or seven hours that you're not working, you're usually laying in bed trying to figure out what you're going to do the next day. And I was thinking about the name of the company. By the by, the time I'd become, uh, we had we had separated the company, and I became Iris Fire Investigations. Mm-hmm. I started reading uh, some of the latest. Uh, business books on on management and things like this and i and i remember reading uh uh one book uh, i believe it was called uh, more with less and it and it was the author had traveled around the world finding companies that were contrary to what was considered normal for instance he he actually found a steel mill uh in the united states that had turned a profit for like 13 straight quarters he found an airline back back in the uh, late 80s and 90s that was actually profitable, and he found these companies that were actually profitable and and thriving uh, when all their other competitors were struggling to to uh, make ends meet. But he found one common uh, thread between all of these, and it was from the the CEO all the way down to the newest hire these people embraced and were able to provide and, and recite the the company's mission statement mm. they didn't have and, and it wasn't and, and the key to it was it had to be succinct and it had to be uh easily uh remembered uh you know i i, I remember seeing our mission statement at the fire department and it was in a a uh big uh, 12 by 18 picture frame and it looked like the declaration of independence i mean it was it was that verbose no yes. one's going to be able to memorize or recite that but these people in these companies that that bought into the culture uh mm-hmm. bought into this these simple uh mission statements and as i thought about this and i thought about iris I thought, you know, it's, it's kind of boring to tell them that I was too lazy to come up with a name, and it's actually an anagram of my ex-partner's last name. And 
that doesn't sound very sexy. So uh, <laughs> one of those one of those late nights laying in bed trying to think about this and thinking about that book I just wrote or read, uh, I I come up with the the simple mission statement for Iris. It's investigations redefining industry standards. I love it. And it was a eureka moment. I thought, yeah, it, it's absolutely perfect because when as as I've been led, and, and as I said, I don't know business. It's divine providence and God's blessing that got me where I'm at today, 19 years later, 20 years later. Yeah. Uh, whenever I had to make those those decisions for, for Iris Fire Investigations, it's that decision is going to redefine industry standards. So I've, I've always, we've always sort of looked for those innovations and those those changes in the industry that we can incorporate. You know, things like uh, uh, I i probably was one of the first that I know of to purchase and ultimately crash numerous times drones to, to uh, document fire scenes. <laughs> right. Yeah, we ruined uh, ours too. Yeah, digital, did. <laughs> digital photography is another advancement. But look at it today. When I first started introducing that back in uh, uh, the late 90s, uh, uh, there, there was – there were people going around saying you can't use them because you could, the pictures can be altered. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're not using digital photography, uh, you're 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 behind you're behind the curve. So we've always yeah. we've always sort of yeah. been uh, those innovators looking at new ways to uh, improve the product and improve the the service we have to our clients. And I think I think that's uh, as as I sit here and think about it, I I, I think that is probably what companies and, and more importantly individual investigators mm-hmm. need to uh, uh, embrace if you will uh, I don't think uh, even as the president of the IAAI this term mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's a little um, presumptuous to uh, aspire to be the best fire investigation organization in the world I, I don't think it's our role to say we're the best. Let someone else say that. That's right. I think our role as an association and as individuals not to be the best. It's just to be better. That's right. Every and, day, just just get better and uh, uh, let someone else say you're the best. It's it's not for us to say. Uh, I, I think if, uh, if, if that's our goal, I think sometimes we rest on our laurels and uh, we get passed by. Uh, but if we uh, if we look at what we do day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And I learned this from, uh, uh, from a patent attorney. Uh, look at everything you do day in and day out. And no matter how efficient and, and, and well you do that particular function, whatever it may be, always, always wonder if, there, if there's a, a better way to do it. Is there a way to get better doing a particular task? And I think that's what's going to advance you professionally and personally and and it's going to that's what's going to advance the industry and i think that's that's the uh focus we need we need to take yeah and let's let's talk for a second that i i i worked a 13 fatality fire in new york city and it's six six stories and we mm-hmm. droned it on the outside we matterported every apartment the stairways everything okay then of course we digitally photographed everything we also diagrammed every apartment even though we didn't have to because we had the scanner. However, mm-hmm. individual apartments would have individual damage. So 
This is the kind of thing that fire investigators, particularly on large losses or multiple fatalities, need to know what the technology is, which is wonderful about your as-seen-on-scene that you write for for the magazine, for the Fire and Arson Investigator magazine. So I want to thank you for that, too. And um, if there's um, anything you'd like to add, Bob, now's the time because we're going to be ending the, sh- ending the show. All right. Yeah, you, you, meant, you mentioned a couple of things there uh, uh, when you're talking about drones and Matterport technology. Right. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, drones or unmanned aerial systems as, as uh, the proper uh, term for them mm-hmm. in Matterport technology, though that that industry or those industries and that technology and those tools when when they were engineered and designed and brought to market fire investigators weren't even on the horizon that that was not the the venue that they were going to uh market their wares on uh but it but it illustrates to the fire investigators or or to our industry is that we need to not rely just on our industry to to look for the next advancement. We need to look outside our industry and look at other businesses. What are they using? What are they doing? And how can we exploit that technology to the benefit of the people we serve? And that Matterport technology that you spoke about, the unmanned aerial systems or drones, those are are two perfect examples of looking outside the fire investigation universe and looking at other uh, things out there to advance uh, the profession. And and what's great about them is you can put them together and you can measure every window with the, with the uh, drones and you can yeah. 3d, 3d represent every particular, uh, apartment. So, yeah. And, 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 and it's, that's, that's the stuff that's going to, uh, improve and advance our industry. But let me, let me ask you, uh, this question, Mike, and this is, this is what I'll close with. Okay. Uh, you and I could spend the rest of the afternoon or maybe even meet, go to the pub down the street and share an adult beverage and make a list of what makes a good fire investigator, okay? And we'll make a list. And, and Mike, you could probably tell me right now some of the things that come to your top of your head, like uh, an insatiable curiosity, yeah. uh, a lifelong student. Uh, you have to have a good people skills because you have to develop a rapport you have to have a, a confidence, if you will, uh, on and on. And, and it doesn't matter how short or how long that list is. There's, there's probably many, many attributes that you and I could agree on. That ethical, would make ethical good, standards. Yeah, that would make a, a good fire investigator, a professional fire investigator that, uh, uh, that would do a good job, the proper job, and, and in the right way. Right. But I would suggest to uh, fire investigators out there that at the end of that list, there's probably one attribute that more likely than not would not be on that list, but I believe should probably be on the top of the list. And that simple attribute would be humility. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. when when we are doing our jobs, people's very lives are at stake whether it's a an accidental fire or whether it's a criminal fire what you do will have an impact on people's lives it could be for decades so you have to make sure that you know you you can 
you can determine the area of origin and the cause of the fire, and you may be very confident in that area of origin and the cause of that fire. The problem is without sprinkled with a little bit of humility, you may be, you may be missing something. And what I always tell investigators are is uh, once you've identified or you believe you know where the fire started and how it started, assume the role of that responsible party, whether it's a, a criminal fire or it's an accidental fire and it, it may be, uh, you, you may think it's a contractor that left some stain-soaked rags in the corner, but assume the role of that responsible party and look at that scene through their eyes. And what are they going to find that you may or may not have uh, done a good job on to be able to draw into question your origin and cause? Uh, investigators, it, it's simple to say that our job is to determine how a fire started, where a fire started, and all the circumstances surrounding it. But that's that's not even half the job. The other part of the job is being as equally as confident in being able to say where it could not have started and how it could not have started, because those are the those are the things that uh, show that you've done uh, a thorough job, a thorough investigation. If you if you can. If you can identify how and be able to explain and be able to prove how the fire could not have started as opposed to just how it did start, that just makes you a better investigator. It makes you a, a stronger uh, presentation in, in court or, or in your report writing. And a lot of people miss that. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's exactly right. And as following that, humility is number one. And I'm going to take something out of our code of ethics, the IAAI code of ethics. Always remember that you are a truth seeker, not a case maker. And we have right. challenge coins that says, I am a truth seeker, not a case maker, because your truth has a ring to it when the jury hears it. Absolutely. Exactly. And uh, we're going to go ahead and close. Uh, but before we do, Bob, what are a couple of ways people can get a hold of you, whether it's for IRIS investigations or the international? Well, if they're good investigators, I shouldn't have to tell them. They, could, <laughs> <laughs> they, they should be able to find me easy enough. But if you go to the uh, firearson.com, which is the IAAI website, uh, they can find my uh, contact information there. Uh, the name of my company is IRIS Fire Investigations. It's I-R-I-S. Uh, it's not Irish and it's not I-R-S. Sometimes people think I'm the I-R-S. And oh, no. Th that raises a few eyebrows. Yeah. But uh, uh, my website is irisfire.com. So you can find me uh, at either one of those websites. There's, I, got, I think I've got three different email addresses. But if you go to any one of those uh, uh, websites, you'll be able to find me and... Uh, uh, email is the best way to contact me. That's usually uh, what I respond to the quickest. So, uh, and I'd be happy to answer any questions, uh, uh, help out any way I can. Uh, and any, any of your fire investigation questions or, or careers. Well, great. Thanks so much, Bob. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. And thank hey, this, you. This was a lot, this was a lot more fun than uh, you guys said it would be. And uh, you were nicer <laughs> than Michael, you were nicer than Donna said you would be, too. Yeah, so I, I know. You know, I just didn't go after your throat. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, take it easy. Thank you, Mr. President. I appreciate you very much. And 
Come back next time to Fire Clue, the podcast.